With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, welcome to the Dynamic Duel Podcast, a weekly show where we review superhero films and debate the superiority between Marvel and DC by comparing their characters in stat-based battle simulations. I'm Johnny DC. And I'm his twin brother, Marvelous Joe. And congrats to all of you Marvel fans out there. We are finally back to doing a MCU film with a theatrical release. I know it's been a long time. I'm sure you guys are stoked. Well, that was very generous of you. Thank you. I we are very stoked. You guys, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a while since we've gotten to see a Marvel film in theaters, but it feels so good to be back. This episode, we are going to be reviewing Black Widow, which released this past Friday in theaters and on Disney Plus Premier Access. I thought it was a really solid movie. It wasn't perfect by any means, and we'll be getting into that later on. But overall, I definitely had fun with the movie, and I would definitely recommend it if you have not seen it yet. Yeah, I went in with moderate expectations, I think, and the film delivered for me, but we'll get into that later on in the episode. Before that, we're going to break down the comic book movie news items from the past week, of which there was only one item, and that was the What If official trailer release. That's right, this is an all-Marvel episode. Yes! Congrats again to the Marvel fans. Thanks, man. It's about time. And just so you know, I won't be saying congrats in our next all-DC episode, because I'm petty as hell. I take it all back. (laughs) As always, we list our segment times in our episode description, so feel free to check out the show notes if you want to skip ahead to a particular topic. And if you guys have been listening to us for the past two months, you know that we were doing a heavy Patreon membership drive in which we were trying to get to 100 patrons before this review in order to keep this podcast free and not put it behind a paywall. We did not reach our goal, made it to 54 patrons. And so, I mean, we're men of our word. We will be putting the show behind a paywall later, but we have come up with some concessions so that listeners who are not able to pay for the show are still able to enjoy it because we never wanted to put the show behind a paywall to begin with. Uh, It was just something that kind of forced our hand once Apple Podcasts and Spotify started offering a way for podcasters to monetize their shows. So if we didn't do anything, we would have been throwing money away. But I think this is a good compromise. So what's going to happen is that starting in the month of August... All of our shows will be going behind a paywall, except for a select few, as well as the most recent four episodes from the past month. So listeners who don't pay for Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of that will still be able to listen to this show, but only the most recent episodes. Everything else is being archived behind a paywall that you'll have to pay for if you want to listen. Our subscription rate is only $2 a month. So if you're not able to jam all of our episodes within that time, uh, go ahead and sign up on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, or Patreon. You can still join us at Patreon. Again, our lowest tier is only $2 a month, and you'll still get access to all of our episodes. As well as some additional bonus content on that platform. Yeah, it seems like Patreon is the place to be, because you not only get the show, you also still get the bonus stuff that we offer to all of our patrons. In addition to putting the show behind a paywall, we will be incorporating more ads. Now, Jonathan and I have typically shied away from ads because we don't feel everything is relevant to our listener base. But like most podcasts who try to keep the lights on, we'll be featuring some of the many sponsors that have reached out to us, including Manscaped, which is sponsoring this episode. And we'll talk about them later on. 
So that's what's happening. Uh, if you haven't gone through our backlog of previous episodes, make sure you do that before the end of July, because once August hits, we will be archiving those past episodes behind a paywall. But we think that this is still a good compromise in order for us to be able to monetize the show and for listeners who are unable to pay for the show to still be able to enjoy it. We want to give a special thank you to new patrons Titus, Dimitri Giannios, Steve Hess, Travis Bailey, Michael Haggerty, and new executive producer of this show, Mitchell Phipps. Thanks to everybody who did join us on Patreon. Uh, it means so much to Jonathan and I that you guys helped push us over 50 patrons. We truly appreciate you guys uh, in the sincerest way possible. And we'll be throwing some new content your way soon. Because we hit the 50 patron mark, Joseph and I hit our first goal, which means we will start recording bonus episodes each month specifically for our patrons. Yeah, and in our bonus episode, which will be coming out the 17th, Jonathan and I will be counting down the top 10 Marvel and DC weapons. So that'll be a lot of fun. Tune in for that. And if you listeners still want to join our Patreon, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash dynamic duel. And with that out of the way, quick to the no prize. A no prize is an award Marvel used to give out up until the 90s to fans. Our version, the Dynamic Duel No Prize, is a digital award we post on social media that Jonathan personally draws for those who we feel gave the best answer to our question of the week. Last week's question is a tie into the unofficial release of new Spider-Man outfits that will be appearing in the upcoming Spider-Man film, No Way Home. We asked, what was your favorite live-action Spider-Man costume and why? We didn't get a whole lot of answers this episode. We actually only got three. So we have two honorable mentions and a no prize winner. So let's get to it. Our first honorable mention goes to Reese Brown, who said, Hi, my name is Reese Brown, and I did this once before. I don't know if it went through. I'm pretty much new to doing the uh, question of the week. But my favorite Spider-Man suit has to be the Tobey Maguire suit because it's an important part of my childhood. And an early part of my childhood because it's one of my favorite things to watch was the Spider-Man movies. And it's just a, a classic suit and I really enjoy it. Yeah, it definitely was a classic suit. Uh, if you guys listened to our Spider-Man review that we did back in January with the Ready to Retro podcast, we talked about how the Tobey Maguire suit was hugely influential to more than a decade's worth of subsequent superhero suits. It basically took superheroes out of tights and put them into stylized athletic wear, which was so much cooler than, you know, seeing people run around in their underwear. Or like leather suits with nipples. <laughs> but yeah, like the texture on the suit added so much depth. The raised webbing looked so cool. I remember seeing like his reflective lenses in theaters. It blew my mind. Of course, they improved upon it even further, I think, with Andrew Garfield's outfit in The Amazing Spider-Man 2 and Tom Holland's outfit, but Tobey Maguire's suit really set the bar. Thanks for the answer, Reese. Our next honorable mention goes to John Starosky, who said, Hey guys, John Starosky. Um, my favorite Spider-Man live-action suit was the one from Civil War. Um, it has a nostalgia for me because it's the first MCU appearance for Spider-Man, um, but I also really dig the eyes that move. Um, that was one of the coolest things that we had never got to see before that, and I always really appreciated that effect, and now that we've gotten it and continued with it, it's something that I really appreciate even more. One of the coolest things about Spider-Man is that he's a down-to-earth guy, you know, your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. So seeing him be able to emote in the comics and on screen is part of what makes the character special. I think it helps audiences relate to him even more. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. With the previous movies, we could only tell how Spider-Man was feeling through his voice. Uh, or they would have to, like, take his mask off or, like, rip it to shreds or something like that, which was pretty common in those movies. But the ability to express emotion is so vital. And the MCU thought of a brilliant way to incorporate that by making Spider-Man's suit, you know, designed by Tony Stark, who incorporated all these features, including the special lenses that uh, kind of narrow his focus when he needs to do that. Yeah, it's like an iris, like a camera shutter. Right, yeah. It was a massive cinematic upgrade for that film and for the future of Spider-Man movies, and he'll probably never go back from being able to express himself that way. And the winner of this week's No Prize is Michael Haggerty, who said, Hello boys, Michael Haggerty here, or should I say men. Boys to men, that classic R&B group from the 90s. You remember them? Yep. 
Anyway, not the point. So my favorite live-action Spider-Man costume would have to be the Tokusatsu Spider-Man. That's right, the Japanese Spider-Man. Who would have thought? Who would have thunk it? I bet you weren't expecting that answer. Booyah! Cha-ching! Wah! I'm just making sounds now to fill up time. See you later. Peace! <laughs> Let it never be said that Michael Haggerty doesn't know how to stall for time. The guy's an expert. Oh, totally. Yeah. He's, he's a master class in it. But yeah, the Japanese Spider-Man was in a live-action tokusatsu television show way back in 1978. The costume was pretty ridiculous, but it did incorporate its own Mechazord. So Spider-Man was able to call upon this own like giant robot uh, to fight for him when the circumstances called for it. So that was a pretty badass suit. It had a whole lot more features than, you know, just your standard web shooters. They could do a shit ton of cool stuff. Yeah, I'm still waiting for them to incorporate that power in the MCU or even the <laughs> comics, you know? Yeah. Well, he did show up in uh, the Spider-Verse comic book at one point, so that was pretty cool. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. cool. With his Zord and everything. Spider-Man. But this answer was so outside the box, did not even see it coming. Didn't even think to include him as part of, you know, the live-action set of Spider-Man costumes. So since it surprised me, this answer gets the no prize. Congrats, Michael Haggerty. You did it again. Yeah, you won this week's no prize. If you, the listener, want a shot at winning your own no prize, stay tuned to later on in this episode when we'll be asking another question of the week. And now that that's done, on to the news! Alright, so this past week we got a trailer for the upcoming animated series on Disney+, Plus, What If?, which gives us a look at the many alternate realities of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It looks really dang good. I was really impressed by what we've seen before from this show, but this trailer just cements how incredible this is shaping up to be and how I think it's going to blow away every other Marvel and DC television series coming out this year. Uh, I think that's a stretch. Oh, yeah? Why? It, honestly, like this trailer, I mean, I'm already kind of jumping the gun with my reaction to it, but it didn't really do anything for me. Like, I'm still not looking forward to the show. Like, I was even going to ask you, like, do we even bother reviewing it? Everybody who's listening to this hates you right now <laughs> because everybody who watched it loved this trailer. It looks so amazing. It starts off uh. with a nice callback to the first Iron Man movie uh, where we see Tony Stark in the Middle East and his convoy gets ambushed and he's about to get the shrapnel in his heart. But then enters Killmonger, which was a total surprise. He grabs the bomb that's about to explode, throws it away and rescues Tony Stark. Didn't see that coming. So much of this show looks so fascinating i guess i mean it's it's so random so random and like the voices also threw me off because like some of them were you know the actors from the films like chadwick boseman for black panther which was kind of cool yeah but when it came to tony stark i was like who the hell is that <laughs> yeah that was definitely not his voice i guess it just comes down to like scheduling or money some of the cast could return to lend their voices to these characters and some of them couldn't that being said, I don't think it detracts too much from the tales that they're telling here. I couldn't begin to try to quantify exactly what tales we're getting. Obviously, we're getting things like what if Peggy Carter became Captain America instead of Steve Rogers? We're getting what if T'Challa was abducted by the Ravagers instead of Peter Quill? I think one of the universes shows what would happen if Ultron got the Infinity Stones. We see a really cool shot of the Guardians of the Galaxy substituting for the Avengers. So much of this made me just go like, whoa, what? Wow. Like, it's so compelling. I think largely it has to do with the animation style, which feels a little surreal, not dreamlike or anything, but definitely through its color palette and its fluid motions, it feels very like semi-realistic. The animation I'm kind of torn on because in one sense, it looks like it was cheap. But it's like the best looking cheap animation I've ever seen. I mean, it's no surprise. This is animation from Disney. You know, they're at the top of their class in the world, I would argue, for animation. I wouldn't say it looks cheap. I think it looks really damn sweet. I mean, compared to things like Pixar, yeah, it looks cheap. Oh. But like, you know, it still looks cool. It looks passable. I'll tell you what, it looks cooler than anything fucking DC has put out, animated wise. Wait, you mean like Long Halloween? Like the animation style? We'll see if these Marvel stories are even half as good as that. Oh, they will be. You don't even have to worry about that. These stories are going to be incredible. And it's going to be so much fun to take a peek at what the Marvel Cinematic Universe could have been if events had gone differently. I'm really excited for this. Who the hell cares? Like, why would I care if Peggy Carter became Captain America? Because you have a thing called curiosity and you're not a douche. That's why you would care. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> 
But the show comes out August 11th. There are 10 episodes in the season. So we're going to be reviewing it around mid-October, I believe. So definitely look forward to that. Hopefully we get another trailer for this season because I'm just I'm just gobbling it up. I can't get enough of this. It's so cool looking. Just the power of questioning things, how things could be. And that brings us to our question of the week. Describe an alternate Marvel what if universe that you think would be cool to see. And be sure to do it in 30 seconds or less. Remember guys, you only have a 30 second time limit. So come prepared, but we want to hear what cool ideas you guys have. Record your answer at dynamicduel.com by clicking on the red microphone button in the bottom right hand corner, which will prompt you to leave us a voicemail. Your message again can be up to 30 seconds long and don't forget to leave your name in case we include you on the podcast. We'll pick our favorite answer and draw that person a Dynamic Duel no prize that we'll post to social media. Be sure to answer before July 17th. But I think that does it for the news items for this past week. Again, there was only one news item. But before we get into our review of Black Widow, we want to let you guys know that support for Dynamic Duel is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels, and they just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right? The 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code DUEL, D-U-E-L, at manscaped.com. Now, when Manscaped first reached out to us, I thought they were a facial hair brand. So I was like, sure, you know, I like to keep my beard trimmed and sculpted. Occasionally, I rock the Tony Stark. Sometimes I even sport the Wolverine mutton chops. Jonathan, I know you're a fan of that look. No, that's, they look dumb. <laughs> but anyway, when they sent over their Lawnmower 4.0 in a beautiful box, great packaging, I read the message, your balls will thank you. So I was like, what now? And yep, sure enough, it was a trimmer for down there. It's a thing. I mean, we're all mature adults here. Body hair is a fact of life. And as I looked at this cool gadget, I began wondering, why would anybody only use one trimmer? You gotta have two trimmers for different jobs. You gotta use the right tool for the job. Like Batman, you know, he always has the right tool. And without a doubt, he would have this trimmer. And that's because the sleek black lawnmower 4.0 is so specialized. It has a skin-safe replaceable blade, so no nicks. It has a special light that illuminates where you're grooming so you can see better. It's waterproof, so you can take care of things in the shower. You can charge it wirelessly. It even comes with a cleaning brush so you can keep it clean. The Lawnmower 4.0 is awesome. And now that I have this sleek precision instrument, I can style down there just as well as I style up here. And you know, give myself the downstairs Tony Stark, as it were. Or even the downstairs Wolverine, you know? Maybe go for a smooth Dr. Manhattan, whatever. The sky's the limit. Why the fuck are you making us visualize this? <laughs> I don't even want to think about what those would look like. So if you listeners want to impress yourself and your significant other by trimming the hedges on your Groot, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code DUEL, D-U-E-L, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And use the code DUEL. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But with that out of the way, let's get into the main event of this episode, where we review the latest Marvel film to hit theaters and Disney Plus premiere access, Black Widow.
newly released film was directed by Kate Shortland and stars Scarlett Johansson, Florence Pugh, David Harbour, and Rachel Weisz. As we all know, the character of Black Widow was introduced in the MCU in the Iron Man 2 film back in 2010, and she went on to play roles in the subsequent Avengers films and Captain America sequels. And now that we finally got her solo movie in 2021, everybody's asking the question, was this movie worth the wait? And in my opinion, I'd say yeah, definitely. I really had fun with this movie. Though I'll say we were probably made to wait too long, because as successful as the film was in giving us the Black Widow action and backstory we've been vying to see for over a decade, the film would have been even more successful if it was released when it chronologically took place, around the time of 2016's Captain America Civil War. Yeah, this takes place like right after that film. Yeah, but we'll go into the specifics about what worked and what didn't work within the film. First, I gotta give the obligatory spoiler warning. For those who haven't seen Black Widow yet, don't listen to this review. Go see the movie, and then come back, because we'll be discussing plot points from this film, and there are a few twists to be had along the way that you're probably not going to want to know upon your first viewing. Go see it in theaters or in Disney Plus Premier Access. It's worth it, but only continue listening if you've seen the film. Yeah, you saw this in theaters, right? Yeah, in IMAX. Well, that's cool. I did not. I watched it at home through Premiere Access, and I didn't mind it that way. This film did have a lot of action, but I would argue not enough spectacle to warrant a big screen viewing. Do you feel differently? I do. Yeah. When I was watching it in theaters, I was like, I'm really glad I'm not seeing this on the small screen because the sound makes a huge difference. And of course, you know, the big picture clarity. So I would recommend theaters, but it sounds like, you know, whichever way you can see the movie, definitely check it out. It's actually doing almost as well on Premiere Access as it is in theaters, according to the preliminary numbers that we have for this initial box office weekend. Oh, yeah. It's like at $80 million in theaters right now as of this recording and $60 million on Premiere Access. So that's big business for Disney. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. And it might never go back to just theater releases. They might do simultaneous releases from here on out with those kind of numbers. We'll see. But I've been anticipating a Black Widow movie, uh, not since Iron Man 2, but since the Avengers film, where they fleshed out her character a bit more, particularly in her interrogation scene with Loki, where the God of Mischief talked about her red ledger and all the regrets from her past he learned from the mind-controlled Hawkeye. Now, we didn't get explicit details of what happened to Black Widow's past, but Loki mentioned Drakov's daughter, which at the time was just a passing reference, didn't mean much. And later in that film, Black Widow referenced Budapest, So we just got these teases of her past, including the first look at the Red Room in Avengers Age of Ultron, but nothing really concrete, and she was always just this mystery. This film, Black Widow, seemed to gather up a lot of these past references and sort of puzzled them together, which I imagine could be quite a sloppy way to approach a script, but I think the movie actually did it pretty well. It's a standalone story, kind of a personal detour away from the larger MCU, which I liked since so much of what we've seen in the movies and shows lately has dealt with the fallout from Infinity War and Endgame. So this was a refreshing change of pace to go back to a time before all that happened for this more isolated, intimate look at one of the primary Avengers. In fact, I think after the events of Civil War was the perfect time to frame the story because the Avengers were split up and Natasha was on her own for a time. You know, she couldn't call for backup because at this point, backup didn't exist. Yeah, that's one of the criticisms of the MCU in doing, you know, sort of these one-off films. It's like, well, if this superhero is facing this big threat, why not call on his or her allies to help? Right, exactly. And here she had to go elsewhere to deal with this evil organization from her past to help take it down. And there enters this former surrogate family we never knew she had. And in addition to this film, we get answers to questions we've always had about her. And though the stakes were smaller, they were also more personal to Natasha and her own journey. So in terms of the premise, in terms of when it was set, and the story they told, I think Marvel nailed it. And I hope we get more of these sort of detours from the larger MCU narrative in the future, because although these side stories don't necessarily build upon the universe, they do expand it in interesting ways. Yeah, I mean, I liked this movie. This was a personal film. That's what I expected it to be. In most spy films, the central conflict really isn't too personal. You know, a a man of mystery is given an assignment and he'll fulfill the mission. In this film, Natasha really doesn't answer to anyone but herself. And in a way, that almost makes it more like a revenge film, which is also cool. Yeah, perhaps a revenge film, perhaps a redemption film. 
an exploration of family. That's what I liked most about this film was that exploration. Now, in the comics, Natasha was an orphan raised by a Russian vet named Ivan Petrovich. Melina Vostokov was a villain called Iron Maiden. Yelena Belova was another Black Widow from the Red Room. And Red Guardian was actually Natasha's husband, who apparently died. So this surrogate family in the movie was definitely not from the source material. But I like what this film did with those characters, and I like how the film addressed the themes of family, especially the concept of sisterhood. Now, Jonathan, you and I have one sister, Sierra, but she was one girl out of five siblings. There were four boys. So I never really was aware of the beauty of sisterhood, not until you had your daughters and I got to see them interact. Jonathan's girls are currently six and ten, and when they're not annoying each other, they get along beautifully in a way that is much more caring and supportive than a relationship of brothers, I think, which is typically more rowdy and competitive. But because of the theme of sisterhood, in seeing Natasha and Yelena rebond as sisters through the course of this film, and seeing them rescue their fellow Black Widows, I think the concept of female empowerment is far more organic and pure than in other female superhero films. Because most, if not all, female-led superhero films have this message of female empowerment, but usually it's shoehorned in, or the female perspective is clumsily incorporated in some other way. Compare Birds of Prey. Harley Quinn's like, here's a hair tie! or telling Carol Danvers to keep her emotions in check. Like, you don't see that shit in this film. Natasha and Yelena are feminine, but not as a gag or a plot point. You know, they're not a caricature of femininity like Wonder Woman with her constantly perfect hair. They're more real. They're kicking ass and getting dirty and ribbing on each other for posing while fighting, but, you know, also compassionate enough to share a hug and cry. To me, this is the best female-led film in the superhero genre that we've gotten to date. Yeah, I can't really think of another superhero film that has that sort of sisterhood dynamic. As a guy, I would imagine that, you know, Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow is probably more relatable than, you know, the crazy Harley Quinn or the perfect Diana Prince for women. Yeah, and for any woman who has a sister, I think. As a guy, I can't say that 100%, but that's the impression that I got. Though I'll say that it is possible that they could have taken the female empowerment themes even further and addressed the issue of human trafficking more, which is a scary real issue, but I am pleased that that element was included here regardless. Yeah, the opening credits. Marvel had opening credits. That was wild. Yeah, but did you notice that they didn't have a visual sequence at the start of the end credits? Oh, yeah. But the opening credits scene, I think, was done as an homage to the types of credit scenes that we get for other spy films like the Bond movies. That was definitely cool. Yeah, all they needed is like Scarlett Johansson, like walking across the screen and like an hourglass figure and like she shoots the screen at the last second. <laughs> that would have been dope. <laughs> Another thing I liked about the film was the action. I thought the action in this movie was fantastic. There was a lot of great set pieces, including the Taskmaster bridge fight, the Budapest car chase, the Russian prison escape and the Red Room fight. The action was sufficiently pulse pounding and hard hitting in many spots. And largely the set pieces reminded me of a Mission Impossible film. That said, although there were some impressive stunts, this movie did not have the benefit of a Tom Cruise doing all the dangerous stuff. And in many shots, you could tell that a CGI body double was being used for Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, the action was fine. It wasn't as great as I wanted it to be, especially with modern films and modern stunt work like John Wick or Nobody or, you know, even Birds of Prey, I think, had some really impressive stunt work. The biggest thing I didn't like about this film largely involved the plot in the third act because a lot of it just kind of fell into place and worked out largely because of this vast amount of off-camera preparation and setup by Natasha and Melina. A lot of the suspense of the family getting captured and Dreykov getting the upper hand, it was all artificial because in the story, the protagonists knew exactly what to expect. Sometimes that kind of in-line retconning can be clever, like say in Ocean's Eleven, but here it was more like, oh, that's convenient, you know? Like Melina's Red Room intel felt kind of akin to a deus ex machina. I wasn't too bothered by it. Honestly, by the time Scarlett Johansson broke her own nose, I just felt like she was so hardcore that it didn't really bother me. <laughs> when Melina and Alexi escaped their containment cells because she was like, oh yeah, I designed these. I was like, what a cop out. I don't know. I didn't really like that too much. The other issue I had with the third act was that the villain's agenda lacked the kind of explicit clarity and immediacy that would have given the film a better sense of high stakes urgency. Because if you think about it, despite the threat that the Red Room and the Black Widow program posed, it could have been taken down tomorrow or next week, and the results would have been the same. The analogy I came up with our patrons on our Discord chat room is, 
compare the Red Room's Black Widow program with Hydra's Project Insight from the Captain America the Winter Soldier movie. Now, both programs had the capacity to cause worldwide chaos, but Project Insight had loaded guns ready to fire that Captain America had to stop right now. Project Insight had immediacy. It had palpable tension. Conversely, the Red Room had more of an implied threat. Yes, Drakov said he could start and end wars. Yes, the Black Widows could fuck shit up worldwide. But it was just telling and not showing. This film had no loaded guns, no countdown, no urgency, no immediate stakes. It would have sorely benefited from a loaded gun of sorts where we saw like a team of Black Widows about to assassinate a group of leaders or launch some nukes or something. I think the film would have benefited greatly from that kind of immediacy. Absolutely. I mean, and if you had that kind of immediacy, you probably would have improved your villain as well because you would have seen him setting that plan up during the course of the movie. This film has a huge villain problem. You're not even really introduced to the villain until the final act. Yeah, General Drakov was dull as shit. And Taskmaster, goddammit. Now, I can see why they had the twist in this movie, because narratively it made sense to have Natasha confront the you know, greatest weight on her soul to be faced with the past she desperately tried to redeem herself for. But because they chose to go with this like mystery, this twist, they couldn't really explore the character of Taskmaster too much. And this decision not only made Antonia Drakov underdeveloped, But it also did it at the expense of such a great character from the source material. And that is very disappointing as a fan. Honestly, I think they should have just kept the girl dead. Like, leave that red in her ledger, let her own the responsibility of that action, and just move on from there. Yeah, letting Antonia Drakov live was actually kind of a cop-out. Hands down. Natasha's arc suffered because of this decision. Antonia Drakov's arc suffered because of the mystery. And of course, the comic book character of Anthony Masters, Taskmaster, also suffered because he never got his moment to shine. But let's talk more about the characters in our character breakdown. So Natasha Romanoff, a.k.a. Black Widow, was played by Scarlett Johansson. I have to say that while I always wasn't sold on this casting, not only is this Scarlett Johansson's best performance I've seen her give in this role... This movie also answered a lot of the issues that I had with the character, you know, like the accent and her lack of past and things like that. They were all completely rationalized here for me. And for the first time in this movie, I finally saw Scarlett Johansson as the comic book character, which was really nice. Yeah, I'm not the biggest Scarlett Johansson fan, and it's probably just due to my DC bias. Um, (laughs) But I can't deny that she's gotten better with the character in each subsequent role that she's played her in. And since this is like the last time, maybe, that she'll be playing the character, I think it was fitting that she was so good this time out in this role. And her arc was pretty solid. You know, at the beginning, she's a little bit disillusioned after the fallout of the Avengers during the Civil War movie. And she starts off talking about how, you know, she's actually better on her own. She says that to the Rick Mason guy. But through the course of the film, she realizes that she's actually better with a family. She realizes that she has two families and that she cares for them very much and that they care about her. And she doesn't feel as alone as she did when she first started the movie. I thought there was great character growth there. And by the end, you know, she admitted to Yelena that their time spent as family was real, that it meant a lot to her. And this kind of like callous facade that she had kept up this whole time of seemingly not caring was proven false. She actually does care a lot for these people in her life. In the context of, you know, Endgame, where she dies, I think that now when you watch Endgame, you might find that it wasn't just, you know, like Clint and his family that she was sacrificing herself for. She was also doing it for the other people that she cared about, including her surrogate Russian family. Yeah, maybe later on we'll find out that one of the reasons she sacrificed herself was because, you know, three of her family members or one of them were lost in the blip. And it'll just add a little bit more weight and motive to why Natasha sacrificed herself in Endgame. Yeah, that would be really touching if, you know, if it turned out that she was just trying to bring back her sister. Costume-wise, I gotta say, I really liked Black Widow's costume here. I thought it was cool that she got that, like, snowsuit variant. Her costumes have never really been too different throughout the course of the films, except, of course, in Avengers Infinity War, where she had, like, the blonde hair and her sister's vest. That was a cool little shout-out to the outfit that she had in Infinity War, where we learned that it was actually kind of like a keepsake from Yelena. But I thought, like, the design of her Black Widow suit here... And like the style of the buckle that went across her chest. I thought that was pretty dope. Yeah, and the red bracelets. Yeah, that's huge. You know, they've always kind of shot out blue widow bite stingers, you know. But here they were red, which I've always been a more fan of that color when it's red in the comics. So that was really cool. 
Let's move on to Yelena Belova, who is played by Florence Pugh. Now, a lot of people have praised Florence Pugh for her performance in this role, and I could totally see why, because it does seem like it was the perfect marriage between her deadpan delivery style and the dry humor dialogue she was given. A lot of her stuff was done for, you know, comedic effect, but she was definitely one of the most standout characters within this movie. Yeah, she rode the line between badass and comedic relief pretty well. In fact, I wouldn't even say she was comedic relief. I think she just gave a fun performance. Yeah, that may be the case. Yaletta's arc was a little bit similar to Natasha's in that she discovered a family along the way. Uh, she had always felt like the years spent undercover in Ohio were the best years of her life. And her time after that was just going through hell, you know, being mind controlled by the Red Room and the Black Widow program. So when we finally see them together again as family while Natasha is still guarded and cynical like that. Yelena was a little bit more open and excited to be with these people that had made her so happy as a child. In the end, they all came back together and revealed that they still cared about each other. So that was nice to have her see that moment. It was all that much more heartbreaking in the after credits scene where we see that she lost one of the people in the world that she cared about the most, Natasha. Now, in the comics, Natasha and Yelena had their faces surgically swapped for a time, like in Face Off, and we talk about that in our Black Widow versus Black Canary episode. So I was still hoping that that would be the case within the MCU and Natasha would actually still be alive. But I'm really glad that it seems like Yelena is going to take up the mantle and become the next Black Widow, whether it be in a Dark Avengers type team or a Thunderbolts team, whatever the Contessa is seemingly putting together. Before we even see that team, though, of course, we're going to see Yelena again in the Hawkeye Disney Plus television show. So that's going to be cool. Let's move on to Alexei Shostakov, a.k.a. Red Guardian, who is played by David Harbour. Now, this role was purely comedic relief. The only function that Red Guardian served in the story was to direct Natasha and Yelena toward Melina, who had the information they needed to infiltrate the Red Room. Other than that, he never really pushed the story forward. And that was kind of like the joke of it all, because he thought he was more important than he actually was. Yeah, I could see a version of this script without Red Guardian in it at all. That it would said, be a less enjoyable movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, David <laughs> Harbour just nails this role. It was a fun time anytime he was on screen. Although I will say that I guess he had agency at the very beginning of the film when he shot out the tires on the SUVs that were chasing them and how he delivered the mind control data to General Drakov. Yeah, yeah, he was critical at the beginning, but after that, not so much. I think it would have been nice to actually see him kick Taskmaster's ass because you think that he would be able to, given that he's a super soldier and Taskmaster is not, even That's though he's like a better fighter. Or at least it would have been nicer to see Red Guardian hold his own a little bit better and have that heroic moment uh, that he was kind of striving for. He needed one. I think this film was sort of missing that for him. Yeah. I love the fact that he was obsessed with Captain America, even though he clearly never <laughs> met the guy. You tell yeah. everyone that he had, but they were calling him on his BS. <laughs> <laughs> so good i love the fact that even though he was kind of a fuck up he had a lot of heart you know he didn't always say the right things he even admitted to natasha at the end when she asked him if he wanted to say anything he said he would just mess it up you know <laughs> and he was trying to like console yelena midway through the film and he found out he couldn't really do it through this tale about his father going toilet in his hands but he <laughs> was able to reach her by remembering her favorite song and that was really touching yeah it showed that he cared in some ways, he was kind of the heart of this film. Yeah, I think you could totally say that. Let's move on to Melina Vostokov, who was played by Rachel Weiss. Now, in this movie, she was not the character of Iron Maiden as she is in the comic books, but she did have this kind of like Russian contemporary Tony Stark feel about her in that she was a genius who was not only the strategist behind their Ohio mission, but also helped develop a lot of the Red Room's tech. I think she had a great arc in this film. Like she started off seeming to really truly love her Ohio life and care for the girls. And then as she was separated from them, she kind of became colder until they were reunited once again. And she found herself taking up this maternal role once again. I thought that was really touching because it showed just how much she cared and how much that time in Ohio meant to her as well. And that kind of parlayed into this comedic sensibility as well, because as maternal and caring as she was, you know, she's also Russian, like stereotypical Russian, where she has this aloof toughness about her that was really endearing. Like she'll walk out of a barn holding this like sniper rifle or something. It was giant. It was like twice the size of her carrying it around like it was nothing. Like there wasn't too much that really shocked Melina through the course of this just because of how, you know, tough she was. Right. 
And I thought Rachel Weiss did a great job with the performance. Let's move on to Antonia Drakoff, a.k.a. Taskmaster, who is played by Olga Kurilenko. Now, when I was watching this movie for the first time in theaters and I saw Olga's name show up in the opening credits, I was like, Olga Kurilenko is in this movie? I had no idea. Like, she's kind of a big actress. You know, she was a Bond girl. She was in the Hitman movies. She's like a big time Russian Hollywood actress. Why would they have never shown us that she was in this movie? And then I thought about it for about two seconds and I was like, oh, fuck, she's Taskmaster, isn't she? So I saw the twist coming. I didn't know that she was Dracov's daughter, but I was prepared for that disappointment that they wouldn't be true to the character of Taskmaster from the start of the film. Yeah, back when we talked about the trailers for this film, I had speculated pretty early on that Taskmaster was going to be a woman. I thought it was going to be Rachel Weisz's character. Yeah, and, I remember that. Know, there was just going to be like a, a big reveal. It turned out Rachel Weisz wasn't Taskmaster, but Taskmaster was still a woman. Like Marvel will sometimes like play these games trying to keep these mysterious characters a secret for the purposes of keeping the story interesting. And they used O.T. Fag Benley as a red herring trying to get people to think that his character, Rick Mason, was in fact uh, Taskmaster. But nobody bought that from the get go. You know, no. we all knew yeah. that something was up here and, you know, it was just a matter of them finally revealing it. And I think most people were disappointed by this revelation. But I do have to say that I wasn't really disappointed by Taskmaster's action. Practically, I think Taskmaster was hella cool in the action scenes, so I'm not mad about that. But to know that like we'll never get Anthony Masters' awesome backstory in the MCU, or hell, even Antonia's backstory about how she got these photographic reflex powers and the nature of her tech implants, it just breaks my heart. But uh, if you, the listener, want to know more about the comic book character of Taskmaster, listen to our last episode where we go into his backstory, uh, where we pit him against the DC character Prometheus. In this movie, Taskmaster felt a lot more like Prometheus. Yeah, yeah. When I saw them putting the USB drive in the back of Taskmaster's head, I was like, fuck this shit. What are they doing? What a bunch of copycats. Ugh. Yeah, it wasn't really like photographic reflexes. It was more like a programmable brain is what they had here, like Prometheus. Marvel always copying DC. No surprise. Well, now when DC actually puts Prometheus in a film, they'll be like, DC always copying Marvel. Well, again, they had Prometheus in the Arrow TV show. They just butchered the character because it was nothing like Prometheus from the comics. Exactly. Like, neither of these characters got any justice in live action. It's, it's sad. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. I only have one more character that I want to talk about, and that is General Drakoff, the big bad of the movie himself, who is played by Ray Winstone. Now, I really like Ray Winstone as an actor. He's been in some amazing films over the years, but I have to say his appearance in this movie was dull as hell. Yeah, he phoned it in. Yeah. Totally. It was satisfying to see him get the shit beat out of him, but uh, he wasn't compelling as a villain whatsoever. Honestly, I would have lost Drakoff altogether or had General Drakoff be Taskmaster because as most of us know, Taskmaster in the comics has an academy that he runs where he trains supervillain bad guys. So they could have easily made Taskmaster the big bad of the movie in charge of the Red Room, have Drakoff as an alias, and I think everything would have been fine. Exactly. We speculated that Taskmaster would be running the Red Room when we were discussing the trailers. It's actually really disappointing that that wasn't the case. Yeah, it would have worked out perfectly because you know how Taskmaster wore the mask and was kind of like all burned up in this movie? You could have had Drakov himself survive and then have to like wear this mask to cover his own burn scars. And then you still would have had the tragic past for Black Widow to deal with. It would have made so much more sense. I don't know why they didn't go that route. It seems so simple. They don't come to us for these ideas. Why? They should listen do to that. our podcast. <laughs> Just listen. <laughs> But that does it for the character breakdown for this film. Let's get into the story highlights. Now, the film starts off in 1995, Ohio, where we see Scarlett Johansson grow up as a child alongside Yelena Belova and her surrogate family, Melina and Alexi. And that totally threw me because I thought they were going to imply that Black Widow wasn't Russian because she was raised in America. Yeah, and it was really cool when it turned out that this family was kind of like the Americans situation from that television show, The Americans, right, where yeah. they're Russian spies, you know, going undercover as Americans, and they're really doing some shady shit. They escape Ohio in a plane to Cuba. 
I thought that was a really intense scene where Melina gets shot and then Natasha had to take the wheel. As they met up with General Drakov and Melina is being you know, carried away by the Cuban paramedics, she tells the girls, Natasha and Yelena, to not lose their heart because she knew what they were about to go through. You know, it seemed like Natasha had already had some Red Room training, but Yelena was too young and she was just about to start going into it, which we see in the opening credits. We see them taken apart from each other, which was just heartbreaking, and run through these training programs. It was a very well done opening credit scene, and I really like the Smells Like Teen Spirit cover song that they used there. Yeah, that was pretty cool. After that segment, 21 years later, we go to the year 2016, right after the events of Civil War, where General Ross is going after her. He thinks she's in this building, but really, she's far away on a boat to Norway. I did feel like there could have been an action scene there, like where she just takes out the entire squadron of soldiers. She Am was I too the only smart one for that. Thinks that she was too smart to even be there. I guess I, I don't even know what happened there. Honestly, they found her tracker, but not her because she was hundreds of miles away. I guess that's clever. like a badass. I, I would have rather seen her take everybody out. Honestly, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, well, she's smarter than you. I guess I'm just more of a badass than her. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> From there, we go to Morocco, where we see Yelena as part of the Black Widow program. They're trying to exterminate this former Black Widow who managed to acquire this mind control antidote. She kills the Black Widow, but that Black Widow activates the serum, snaps Yelena out of it, and she realizes that she's been mind controlled this whole time and escapes the Black Widow program. This was really the whole catalyst for the film. Yeah, it was the whole setup. But because Yelena defects, the Red Room activates the Taskmaster Protocol, Meanwhile, Natasha lands in Norway where she gets set up with a trailer that she starts living in. I love the little moment in the scene where she's like kicking back, enjoying watching Moonraker, the James Bond film with Roger Moore. I thought that was cool. But since her generator goes out, she has to go into town where she's attacked by Taskmaster. And you have to wonder how Taskmaster even knew where to find the serum. I mean, we know that Natasha got it from Yelena, but how did Taskmaster know that Yelena gave it to Natasha and wherever Natasha was? That's a great question, actually. I guess the Red Room would have files that Yelena had an association with Natasha prior to her uh, mind control. So that would be the most likely suspect, but we don't know that for sure. That's also a big fat stretch. Yeah, it totally is. (laughs) But the fight was pretty cool. You know, other than the whole explosion that would have almost certainly killed Natasha while she was in the car, there were several car crashes in this movie that Natasha lived through that was total bullshit, you know? She had some really fucking heavy plot armor in this movie. The fact that she didn't die here or in the later chase scene where, like, the car, like, smashes down the subway steps, it was just fucking ridiculous. It was ridiculous. (laughs) But the fight is cool. You know, we see Taskmaster throw her shield and use her sword. I think my favorite moment of the fight actually was when... Natasha tried to do that luchador legs around the head flip on Taskmaster and she just kind of like negated it and then did her own luchador leg flip. I thought that was a great example of her abilities. Yeah, this scene was probably the best example of how Taskmaster was able to mimic abilities in the entire film. It was kind of hard to tell what was going on later on. Like you thought maybe when Taskmaster went up against Red Guardian that she was using Black Panther's abilities, but it was difficult to tell. Yeah, I thought it was so badass the way Taskmaster just straight up like booted Natasha right off the bridge. That was a badass kick. When Natasha survives being kicked off the bridge, she goes to Budapest because she realizes that Yelena sent her the package. I guess they test each other's fighting abilities for a second. I don't know. I don't think that fight scene quite made sense why Yelena and Natasha would fight each other, but it happened. And it was a pretty decent fight scene. It reminded me a lot of the Bourne Identity. It was a good fight scene. I didn't like the way it ended. I didn't like how they all of a sudden were just like on the ground. And like, I I guess we're just going to stop fighting. It's like, why were you fighting in the first place if you're just going to end this way? I think if they would have ended it on a different note, it would have made the fight make more sense. Yeah. Also, I think if they were just testing each other, they shouldn't have like been freaking using knives and shit against each other. That's pretty hardcore. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. In this scene, we finally learned what happened in Budapest after all those references from the previous films. Basically, Budapest was the location of Natasha's final mission before defecting to S.H.I.E.L.D. She had to kill the leader of the Red Room in order to prove to S.H.I.E.L.D. that she was no longer loyal to the Red Room. And she chose to do so with an innocent in the way. Yeah, that's really fucked up. And you could tell that that really weighed on her. And it added so much depth to the character. 
That, of course, was, you know, later negated by the fact that Dracov's daughter was still alive. But I like the Hawkeye references here. Like when you see the arrows in the wall and and, uh, the tic-tac-toe games they played in the vents while hiding out in Budapest and stuff like that. I thought that was pretty neat. So while Yelena and Natasha are talking, Black Widows ambush them and there's a huge chase through the streets of Budapest. Uh, There's another big plot armor moment here where Natasha freaking like falls five stories, like slamming into vents and other shit and then lands on her feet. That was dumb. (laughs) That was ridiculous. I didn't get that either. Yeah, she did the superhero landing and everything. Yeah, but uh, here Natasha sees the stakes of what they're going up against when she sees the Black Widow commit suicide against her own will, basically. And uh, Natasha and Yelena escape to a motorcycle where they're being chased by Taskmaster, who's in this tank-like vehicle. That was really intense. I thought that was pretty cool. It reminded me a lot of the film Goldeneye, where you see James Bond chasing the bad guy in that film in a tank. But, you know, here it was flipped where the good guys were escaping the tank. Natasha and Yelena managed to evade Taskmaster, we see Natasha's guilt in the flashback scene where the bombs go off. I do have to say, like, what the hell kind of dollar store bombs were these that not only didn't kill Dracov, but didn't even kill Dracov's daughter? Seriously, yeah, it's like, at least check the body. Like, how are you going to confirm a kill without checking the body? Right, right. So Natasha and Yelena, the evade taskmaster, they go to this convenience store to kind of patch up their wounds, and they have a touching conversation about what they've been up to while they were away. We get some exposition on the mind controlling, the girl trafficking. There was a moment where Yelena asks Natasha if she ever wished for kids and Natasha never answers, which I thought was a subtle callback to Avengers Age of Ultron, where Natasha admits to Bruce Banner that she can't have kids and how much that pains her. Yeah, it was this point in the movie where Natasha really stopped reacting to things and decided to, you know, cross that threshold as the protagonist, you know, take on this new mission. And it was kind of nice that, you know, she wanted to do it with her sister. Yeah, the bonding had already begun between the two. Together, they decide that they're going to break Red Guardian out of prison so that they can learn where the Red Room is. So they fly over there in a helicopter and help break him out. I thought this was a pretty cool action scene. I really like how Natasha was like tethered to the helicopter, fucking shit up and grabbing Guardian and carrying him away from this prison where like this avalanche is going down. There was a lot of cool moments in this set piece. She has some good arm strength to be able to grab Guardian and like yank him up with one arm. Yeah, that was believable. No, it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, she's a badass. You don't know what she could do. Uh, Once they're in the helicopter, Red Guardian admits he doesn't know where to find the Red Room, but that Melina would know. Uh, I thought there was a great transition out of this scene where uh, Yelena's like, we don't have fuel to make it to St. Petersburg. And then Alexei was like, oh yeah, don't worry, we'll make it. And then you see like the helicopter pretty much just crash. It's another one of those instances where it's like, how did they survive that? (laughs) I really like Alexei's relationship with the girls because you could tell he cares about them, especially the line of dialogue where he like grabs their hands and is like, you have both killed so many people. Couldn't be more proud. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just like, ugh. You smell bad. <laughs> but they get to the farm where Melina's mind controlling the pigs and they sit down and have a drink together. This was actually my favorite scene in the entire movie. Just as all this character building. A lot of gags here, but also a lot of heartwarming stuff. I really laughed out loud when Alexi told Melina that he just got out of prison and had a lot of energy. Like Natasha's and Yelena's reaction to that was fantastic. <laughs> They're like, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Natasha gets angry at Alexi and Melina, telling him that, you know, who cares? It wasn't real. Yelena denies that, saying to her it felt real, and she walks away while Alexi went to comfort her. Then Natasha and Melina have this pretty good heart-to-heart where Natasha learns what actually happened to her mother and how she was killed by General Drakov. And she also learns about Melina, how, you know, she went through everything that Natasha went through as well. Yeah. There's a great line there where Melina said, like, why does a mouse born in a cage run on the wheel? You know, it's all that Melina has ever known. Despite the fact that she's good at heart, she still did this horrible things because she knew no other way. And she even asked Natasha, like, how did you keep your heart? And it was a callback to one of the opening scenes when Natasha was told to keep her heart. And, you know, that pain only makes us stronger. You know, she found in Melina the influence that she needed to break free of the Red Room. And in that revelation, you know, Melina breaks down and she admits that she had contacted the Red Room and that they're on their way to come get them, basically. 
So from there, the family is taken up into the sky, into the Red Room base. We don't realize at this point that Melina and Natasha have switched places using the photostatic veils that were in Captain America the Winter Soldier that are like masks. But when Melina, really Natasha, goes and meets Dracoff, he's able to see through the illusion. Which was pretty convenient. That's true. Actually, there was a pretty decent power struggle throughout this whole scene. Because at first it looks like Dracoff has the upper hand because he can see through the disguise. Then Natasha's family gets the upper hand because they're making the base fall from the sky. Then Dracoff gets the upper hand because he's invulnerable to Natasha's attack through the pheromone lock. Then Natasha gets the upper hand because she's able to sever that lock after she gets the digital key to unlocking all the Red Room secrets. So there was a good back and forth there. Black Widow beats the shit out of Dracov, but that power struggle ends when Dracov calls in the remaining Black Widows to beat the shit out of her. As the Red Room is falling, Red Guardian fights Taskmaster, gets the crap beat out of him again. I wasn't really happy with that. I thought it should have been a better fight, but it ends with Taskmaster being locked in one of the security cells. I thought the fight between Natasha and the Black Widows was pretty good, though. There were some pretty good stunts in that, and we got to see the Widow's bite being used pretty well. But in the end, they get the upper hand, and as they're beating the crap out of her, they all get the mind control antidote when Yelena throws in a smoke bomb attached to the serum. As the Red Room is falling, Alexei and Melina manage to escape on a jet. Yelena ends up killing General Dracov by blowing up his plane as it's about to leave. As Yelena's falling, Natasha jumps out and saves her by giving her a parachute. I thought it was a really touching moment when they're riding down on the parachute together. And Natasha sees Taskmaster coming after him and she knows that, you know, she has to let Yelena go in order to protect her. The fight between Natasha and Taskmaster is over way too quick. Like, it's barely even a fight. You know, they land on the ground. Then almost immediately, Natasha removes Taskmaster's helmet and delivers one of the last remaining vials. Yeah, I thought the fight in the air was going to be a lot cooler than it was considering it was used in a lot of promotional material. Yeah, But uh, it was like they were high in the air and then all of a sudden you cut to them landing on the ground. I'm like, they must have hit the ground really hard. Exactly. Apparently she has a mutant power where she can fall from great heights and survive car crashes. Her blood is just like shock absorption gel or something. But I thought it was really touching that Taskmaster's first words were, is he gone? Just kind of serving to spotlight all the torture that she's been through in her life underneath her father. And it shows that she was aware the whole time. Yeah. Natasha also had a touching moment here where uh, she goes over to Yelena and admits that it was real for her too. And they share a hug and it's all hunky-dory. You know, the family's back together. Yelena, Alexei, and Melina take the now aware Black Widow team and go off to save the other Black Widows around the world. Meanwhile, Natasha evades General Ross somehow. It was kind of a weird beat to end the movie on. It's almost like the writers didn't know how to get her out of that situation. So they were like, um, three months later. <laughs> we see that Rick Mason has gotten Natasha a Quinjet and that she has, you know, dyed her hair and gotten her Infinity War look together. But she says in that moment, you know, that she has two families and she's going to go help some people break out of prison. In the after credit scene, it's heartbreaking. We see Elena visit Natasha's grave. That hit me right in the feels, for sure. For multiple reasons, because not only did you see Elena mourning, you also saw that Natasha was buried in the Midwest, likely in Ohio, where she spent some time with her surrogate family. When Elena whistled toward the end, I was really, really hoping that I would hear Natasha whistle back and that she was somehow miraculously alive again. But instead, we got, you know, the nose blowing from the Contessa. That was kind of a funny bit of subversion on the movie's behalf. But the Contessa basically puts Yelena on Clint Barton Hawkeye's trail. And the Contessa claims that Hawkeye is responsible for Natasha's death, which we know not to be the case, but uh, we don't know how much they know about what actually happened on Vormir. Yeah, it was cool to see Julie Louise Dreyfus in the role of Contessa Valentina again after The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I'm hoping a lot of people saw that show, otherwise they would have had no idea who this woman was. Yeah. Uh, I do have a theory about her, though. And I just want to say on air, just so I could take credit for it when it finally happens. People are like, oh, it was Johnny DC who came up with that idea first. Uh, <laughs> I think Contessa Valentina is from Latveria. And she's setting up Doctor Doom as the next big villain. Just a theory. Yeah, I would love that theory. You know, I, I think that would be cooler than having her part of another organization like Hydra or Leviathan or S.H.I.E.L.D. or other organizations that she's been a part of in the comics. Yeah, I think working for Doom is a pretty solid theory. I like that. But that's the end of the movie. In all, 
I think that the movie's touching commentary on like sisterhood and family was the thing I liked the most about it. I really liked the action set pieces that we got here. I thought they were a lot of fun to watch. Overall, I think the action and emotional aspects of this film were just as satisfying. I give the film four stars out of five. Yeah, there was a lot to like about the movie. Like you mentioned earlier, it was definitely not a perfect film. There's quite a bit you could criticize about it, but not enough that I think it would put it on the same level as something like Birds of Prey, you know, which I think dropped a lot more balls than this did. Uh, I think this is a low four stars or high 3.5 stars. It's definitely four stars. But that does it for this review. Let us know what you thought about the movie by writing to us at dynamicduelpodcast at gmail.com or by visiting us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find links to all of our accounts by checking out our show notes or visiting our website, dynamicduel.com. And also, guys, don't forget that this episode was sponsored by Manscaped. You can also find a link to their site in our show notes where we offer 20% off and free shipping if you use the promo code DUEL. That's D-U-E-L. In our next episode, we will be reviewing the Disney Plus Marvel television show, Loki. I haven't even started it, so uh, I've got a lot to catch up on before we review it. It's only six episodes. You can easily binge it, uh, especially once all the episodes are out tomorrow. Uh, the show is is pretty fascinating. It's very like Dr. Whovian or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy kind of in how kind of random and off the wall it can be, but also how well made it is. It's, it's a really well made show. So can't wait to talk about it next week. We want to remind everyone to please subscribe to our show if you haven't, or please leave us a rating review on your platform of choice. Sharing the show on social media or in person is also a big help for us. But that does it for this episode. We want to give a big thanks to our executive producers, Ken Johnson, Jace Crump, John Starosky, John Spees, Zachary Hepburn, John Beccianina, Stephen Lovato, and Mitchell Phipps for helping make this podcast possible. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Up, up, and away. True believers.